Let us begin this morning with our call to worship. Would you please stand? And our call to worship comes from Psalm 73. Just two verses, verse 25 and 26. And it reminds us where the place our treasure is at, where the place of our hope and our trust is to be found. Here now, the call to worship. Psalm 73. Verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let us turn our attention now to our first reading. It's Psalm 110, Psalm 110 in its entirety, it's just seven verses. Let us be reminded that this is God's holy word. Throughout the history of the world, it's been assaulted, and we read uh, in our Sunday school, at least reference was made to it, of one wicked king burning the word of God. And yet it's preserved for us today for our hearing and application. Let us then give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. Psalm 107. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up his head. And thus we have the reading of Psalm 110. Beloved in the Lord, would you please open up to Mark chapter 16. We're going to read verses 14 to the conclusion of the chapter. As you think about those verses that we read in just a moment, please think about in your own mind what the emphasis is here in these verses. That emphasis is that as Christ is proclaimed everywhere, absolutely everywhere, that the Lord is indeed working through His Word. We're not left as deists just to kind of do things and God is somewhere off in the distance wringing His hands and we're wringing our hands wondering if we're saying, doing the right things. Maybe we should just be better content managers with the Gospel. That's not what's happening. The emphasis is the sovereignty of God through the appointed means of preaching. That He's working with us. Dear ones in Christ, hear now God's holy and infallible word, beginning at verse 14. Afterward, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. And he said unto them, Go, ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Verse 19. So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven, and sat on the right hand of God. 
And they that went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following them. Amen. Thus we have the reading of God's holy and infallible word. The flower fades, the grass withers, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your holy word, both read and now ready to be preached. We do help, ask that you would help us to understand with ears that hear, and a heart of faith, and that you would enlarge in our heart, and grow our understanding, in fact perfect our understanding, with the fact that proclaiming Christ must be everywhere. Absolutely. We ask in the name of our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Dear ones in Christ, although the Lord Jesus Christ is working with believers, as our text says, rather emphatically, as they go and preach the gospel, what is at least possibly one or two temptations that might arise? Maybe you're thinking about this with yourself, or maybe it's here in the text, but what is possibly one or two temptations that arise that would say, well, I'm not so sure about that. Well, I think there's one broad temptation. And that's to do nothing. Nothing at all. The temptation is to just sit. Don't do anything. Well, if God is working with, for example, those who preach the gospel... Well, that, that would eliminate 99.9% of the church would just let the people who are ordained do that work, and we will do nothing. Or there's another one, and that is that the church has just become a maintenance ministry kind of church. We're just holding on here for Jesus to come. And so the smoke alarms, we need to make sure they're up to code. The floors need to be swept, trash taken out. All of those things can be important, but they do not replace the emphatic means here in the text. The fact that the gospel is to be preached everywhere, and that we all have a part in that, in the success of that, but not a part of Christ. I believe those are several temptations. Maybe you can think of some other ones we can talk later on. But I hope you see the problem. Doesn't this kind of thinking deny what Scripture says here? If Christ is working with believers in the proclamation of the gospel, we ought to grab hold of that. We ought to pray this back to God. And when we, say, when we fail at one attempt over here or over there, that doesn't mean that Christ has given up. It means we need to come back to the promise of God, to the means that he's given to us. Look again with me at Mark chapter 16, verse 20. And see this and understand this for yourself. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. And what's that last word? Maybe. Possibly. No, it says amen. It's that word that says this is true. Remember the Lord used this word over and over. He says amen, amen, or verily, verily. This is true. This isn't a suggestion. It's not a debate. This isn't something to be taken to philosophy 101 and characterize and recharacterize and redefine and redefine. These words here are laid down as true and they are. Do you see the sovereignty of God here in preaching? Well, here in Mark chapter 16, verses 14 through 20, I hope you grasp the sovereignty of God here in preaching so that he is proclaimed everywhere. I want to look at this. There's four points to the sermon. An easy way to say it is proclaiming his appearance, proclaiming his as he commands. Thirdly, 
proclaiming His ascension, and then lastly, proclaiming Him everywhere, proclaiming His gospel. Let's look at this first point, proclaiming His appearance. This is in verse 14. After the death and burial of the Lord, He was raised from the dead. And it says here in the text, He appeared to the disciples. Have you ever asked your question, why? Well, why wouldn't he just go somewhere more important? Say to the authorities, or maybe the people who have money, who can uh, manage a social platform and help him promote the fact that he has been raised from the dead. That's not how he works. Look at verse 14 again. It begins there, the first word, afterward. In the final part of the Gospel of Mark, the conclusion of the Lord's earthly ministry is said with that one word, afterwards. Well, well, after what? After what? I don't want to read the entire gospel and, and tell you, but in summary, after what? Well, after the Sabbath day passed, after he appeared to Mary Magdalene and to the two disciples, Luke chapter 24, on Emmaus Road, now it says he appeared to the eleven from the dead and alive. This wasn't some ghostly appearance. Remember elsewhere it says, look at me, put your fingers here. This is flesh and blood. He was raised with a real body. It wasn't some projection, astral body. This was the Lord Jesus Christ, raised from the dead. There weren't bones left in some sarcophagus somewhere. It was him. Now he appeared to the eleven from the dead and is alive. But what were the disciples doing? It says here in the text, they sat. There's nothing wrong with sitting as such. They sat. But were they anticipating his appearance? Did they not read? Did they not know Psalm 110? They did. What were they planning then? Were they planning on going to others? Anticipating at some point to see the risen Lord? Because after all, he said that he would be raised from the dead? No. It's kind of odd, I think. They sat. But then the text says the Lord upbraided them. He upbraided them with the same words used to the certain cities. Turn back, if you would, just to Matthew chapter 11 and see this for yourself. In Matthew chapter 11, <clears throat> verse 20, Then he, that's Jesus, then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. As you know, that activity of repentance, metanoia, is a changing of the mind, a coming, a leaving, fleeing sin, and turning to God. This is what they did not do, these cities. And the Lord upbraided them. In fact, it goes on. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, or Capernaum, which art exalted into heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee have been done in Sodom, LGBTQI plus Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. <coughs> Why? They believed and then the next word in the text is they believe they believe not. That's what it says. Isn't he supposed to be nice though? Right? Why is it that the Lord Jesus Christ comes to the disciples 
and upbraids them. Shouldn't he be nice and soft and fluffy? The Lord, don't mistake, please. The Lord is full of love and compassion. He is. But what is the reason for this rebuke? Look again at Scripture. Because they believe not them which had seen him after he was risen. They were confirming the fact of the resurrection and they didn't believe it. They did not believe them. These were the same people that were with them for the last three and a half years. Are they lying? How come now they don't believe them? Think about that. Isn't unbelief a bit irrational and dishonest in light of the sufficient evidence that God has given? It is. But the situation is worse. They were hardened in heart. This is twin A and twin B. Twin A, unbelief. Twin B, hardness of heart. This is a pair that seems to go together here. Unbelief and hardness will not proclaim his words. Now think about that. Maybe you're asking the question, if you could pop into history at that moment and say to the disciples, how can you do this? What is the problem? Beloved in Christ, how can the disciples proclaim Christ everywhere while they don't believe and they have that situation of the hard heart? And they're hardened against the facts. They're hardened against the witnesses. Not only of Scripture, but those who are telling them that this is true. In that situation, Christ is not going to be proclaimed by those people. How can you proclaim Christ everywhere if you are either lacking in trust, hardened against the facts, or fail to apply your mind in your education in the Word? In the Heidelberg Catechism, it says, what is true faith? True faith is not only a sure knowledge, right? But it's also hearty trust that all these things are true. This seems to be lacking in this situation. Now think about it. Have you ever sat down with an objection and worked through it? Did you find an answer? Did you find an answer for maybe someone else? Someone else has come to you and said, but I have a problem with this in the Bible. Hold on a second, let me get a pencil, paper. What's the problem? Go back, pray about it, read about it, ask your pastor, ask an elder, ask someone else who's gone through that. Certainly we shouldn't grow in unbelief and hardness of heart. But as members of Christ diligently apply ourselves to even objections that we're not sure what the answers are to. I remember years ago, I was at my dad's house, and at the time, I was doing an undergrad studying New Testament Greek, and become more and more aware of Jehovah Witnesses, and I looked out of the corner of my eye, and I saw these books, and I, could, I recognized them right away. They were Jehovah Witnesses books. And I said to my dad, Dad, do you know what these are? He goes, no, I don't. I just found them in the act. The people who lived here before me left them. I said, well, they're Jehovah Witness material. And he says, now son, you can't criticize someone else's faith. Oh, okay. Um, I'm, arguably, you know, we don't want to slap people in the head. We need to have a gentle response as we correctly bring the right criticism to bear down on what they say they believe. And so, what I did was I took their material with the Greek New Testament and I worked through every place I could find, didn't read a commentary and prepare my arguments. I studied God's Word. And so I realized that they created places where rules were violated. They created syntax that didn't exist. They created also places where they could gaslight Christians 
The whole point of it was to obscure Scripture and to confuse you and make you doubt what Scripture says. So I worked through that, and it bore fruit. When I was in Sacramento, we got that knock, and it was a group of Jehovah Witnesses at our door. So I went and got my Greek New Testament, opened it up, and listened to them, asked questions, dealt with their objections, and I got them, rather the Holy Spirit, to confess what they were trying to disprove. And as soon as that happened, the leader there went, whoa, whoa, hold on, hold on. So no, 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 hold on. This was presented to you guys for the first time correctly. And now you're seeing the problem and admitting the truth. Well, we have to go. I said, okay, well, where are you going next? Well, we're going to finish doing the neighborhood. Okay, great, I'm going to come with you because you can't possibly continue to teach this message since your objections have been dealt with. And I did. And they left after that and didn't come back. The point is, is to see that when we have objections, maybe there's uncertainty, maybe there's some doubt, we do want to deal with them as difficult as they might be or however long they might take. We need to pursue that answer. But certainly we don't want to get into the place where we are not going anywhere, not proclaiming Christ. Let each of us allow the evidence to continue to grow and increase as you study and pray through God's Word. We're told we should proclaim as He's commanded. Verses 15 through 18. As you can see, hardness of heart is a serious problem, especially when the physical evidence is present, standing right in front of them. But what about just doing what you're told? How about that? Look at this in verse 15. It says here, And he said unto them, Go, and skip a couple words, and preach. Go and preach. Maybe wondering why I'm saying it like that. Well, if you look at it, they really are two words that are they need each other in order to work. The command in the text here is tricky. You may ask yourself, one gentleman here earlier told me he's studying New Testament Greek. I have a question. Where is the command? Where is the command? It's tricky. Is found in the word go or is it found in the word preach? I gave you a false choice. The answer is yes. Because they need each other. It's one of these weird situations where the, syntactically they work together. So go is, a, is actually a participle and preach is the imperative, the command. Go is the situation, preach is the command. And you can't tear them asunder. Do you see that? You can't put them on separate places in the text as if they're two independent activities when functionally they work together. The word go derives its meaning from the word preach. Why? Go ye cannot exist without preach the gospel. They are symbiotic. They're co-acting. They're hand and glove. They're a handshake, a cordial handshake. Activities. However, there is a controversy in the text. Scripture says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. This is always a controversy. Because many people preach bare minimum. Do you believe in Jesus? Oh, good. That's it. Whew. We're done. No. Um, he didn't just tell his disciples that they didn't believe. Isn't that what he just said? This is a bit of an ouch moment. Even believers need this warning laid upon their hearts. That's what he just accused them of unbelief. Why would he say that? So that they would begin to believe. 
We need that from time to time. Isn't that what the Lord's Supper requires of us? Let a man examine himself. But elsewhere in the Psalms, David says, Search me, O God, and see if I'm in the way. We need this laid upon our hearts from time to time. And then, through the mortification of the old man, you can turn to God through Christ to live as he commands. Then in the next several verses, the Lord promises to believers signs that will follow. We shouldn't do strange stuff with this. This isn't weird. It just needs to be explained correctly. In short, verses 17 through 18 teach us that in the name of Christ, demons are displaced. New languages will be spoken. This isn't something weird. No weapon will be formed that will ultimately hurt or destroy believers in this life, or especially in the next. And others will be healed. All of these promises are to calm our fragile emotions and control our feelings with these infallible promises of God. Now you may be asking, well, how are they infallible? First of all, understand that these aren't weird. People make them weird. But what should stand out in these verses is what God promises. There's a certain kind of verb that's being used here. And when you look at it, it functions this way. It is a promise, a certainty, and it will not fail because God said so. And so if these are the things that are said to us as we go and preach and God will not fail with his promises, what are they supposed to do? They give you that foundation to stand on. They give you that incentive to do it, to go as he commanded, regardless of what we think might happen to us. But we stand on the right foundation, the right ground, the right basis, and the promises of God are always the place where we need to stand and continue. You know who Galileo was? Did you know that he was a bit of a controversy? In the scientific world, and the arts, and the humanities, they, they portray him as some stoic, you know, philosopher king, never budged. Actually, that's not true. He denied his findings five times. Now, much of a pillar, right? You deny the things that you say you believe five times. I don't know if I would trust that person. However, the greater controversy is not Galileo for denying his findings five times. The greater controversy happens to be Christians who say they believe in Christ but then do and say Otherwise, do you understand? Have you ever wrestled with that yourself? How can I go see my family when they know that I'm a contradiction sometimes? If that sounds like you, please know that nothing will follow you except an unfruitful, unprofitable, unproductive walk in life. However, if you're convicted by that, then allow the promises of God to incentivize your walk, and especially as you go and tell others about Christ. Now, why should that be an incentive for you? Romans 8.1 Therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are not condemned. Live like it. Romans chapter 8, verse 37 The word being used there to describe that you are an overwhelming conqueror. It's two words joined together. Hyper Nike. You know what Nike means, right? It means victorious. That's why Nike puts it on their shoe. You wear their shoes, you're a victor. But when you add the word hyper, it means overwhelming or more than. The word there used of believers is that through Christ, you're not just some conqueror. You're an overwhelming conqueror. And how can you not, since he put to death death? But also in Romans chapter 8, verse 39, 
Do you see there that you are bound to the love of Christ and nobody can separate you from Him? Those are more incentives that we have so that we don't live a controversial confession in Christ where people don't know who we are because they see in us, in our walk, confusion. But instead, these are to help us live according to the promises of God and be incentivized. And we're still going to struggle. Don't misunderstand. I know we'll still struggle. And yet, we will pursue these promises and we will confess Christ as He commanded. So you too can tell others about Christ. Every single time the Lord gives you an opportunity. Question for you. Have you ever been somewhere where you just said, you know what, I don't know what's going to happen here today, Lord, but please send one person my way that I could talk to about the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you done that? And did the Lord answer? As you can see, unbelieving is a controversy, and it can get in the way. And in a strange way, I hope we're all controversies, but not because of our unbelief, but because of our consistent faith in Christ. Let us look to Christ as the highest, with the highest glory. And that's what brings us to this next part. Proclaim his ascension. Verse 19. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. This pairs together with Psalm 110, which we read earlier. There it's clearly seen here as being fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ, by his ascension. So why should we bother? Because scripture teaches it. We ought not hold back any part of the word of God. So let's look at this. His being received up and sitting on high. Received up. Was the ascension of the Lord previously foretold in Scripture? Absolutely. This should not have been strange to anyone. When, when the Jewish world heard about this, their response was not, or should not have been, that's weird. They should have been met with, wow, what a Savior. This was spoken of prior in Psalm 68, where the Lord was going to come and take captivity captive, right? This was given by a type, a pattern, a shadow in Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, when Enoch was taken up, God took him. Or in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11, Elijah was taken up. And also another pattern type shadow in Exodus 28, verse 29, where Aaron wore the stones, fulfilled in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. But we have a greater than Aaron, the Lord Jesus Christ. These things who went into the heaven of heavens at his ascension. No, this isn't strange. This isn't new. This is fulfilled. And so we proclaim his ascension. So why was his ascension necessary? Why was verse 19 necessary? To answer that, would you please turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22 says this. Who, and it's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. He appeared in heaven to rule and reign over all things, and that on our behalf. So why do you need to hear this and proclaim this as part of the message? 
Because there are some who think that the expression on the right hand means the glorification of a lesser deity. So Jesus was glorified as he should be. He was a good prophet. He was a good man. And so he's over here as a really important person. Glorified. That's not what's being said. I hope you understand that. The Lord Jesus Christ is not some lesser deity. He is very God of very God. So the expression indicates the highest glory of Christ who is God incarnate. It speaks about his victory. So what does the ascension and session of the Lord mean? It means his unmistakable victory. When we proclaim Christ, we can't speak of the gospel, the forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, apart from the fact that he has an absolute victory over the devil the world, and our own flesh. His victory began in a state of humility, and then in a state of humility, the Lord defeated every weapon, everything, even the devil himself. And as a result, the glory of being sat at the right hand is not merely just something better than other positions of power. You know, we elect someone, and then they take their brother or someone they went to college with and they make them some associate. That's not what's happening. This is peculiar to Christ and Christ alone. Glory and honor belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. Revelation chapter 4. Glory and honor and power to Him. Glory and honor are exclusively His and belong to none other. Therefore you must proclaim Christ everywhere. So ask yourself, how can I express the highest glory of Christ in my understanding, in my will, in the things I love, the things that I adore? How does the highest glory of Christ and His rule impact your devotion to Him? Well, this might be more difficult. I think this is actually more difficult because it requires us to apply that highest glory outside of church. For instance, currently I work for the government. Um, <clears throat> I'm pursuing some other things and so on, but one of the things I ran into was a certain credential for the kind of office that I have. And as I went through their curriculum, I saw it and all the material they use, and it's wicked. It teaches people to hate people in the name of equity. It teaches people to alienate people in the name of fairness. You know what I'm talking about. So I went to both administrative and legislative branch of government and to my boss in particular and I said, listen, these are the reasons why this is wicked. We can't have this as part of our public education and certification because it creates enemies when we work for everybody. Can I rewrite the material and will our municipality back me up in this? And we will be the credentialing agency rather than this international agency that teaches people to hate one another. Yes, I was told. And then I went to the highest judicatory in our government, local government, and I said, will you back this? And that person said, yes. What am I doing? I'm proclaiming the ascension of Christ by rewriting material that better glorifies him. Some of you nurses may need to do that. Some of you lawyers or teachers or public school teachers as well, university professors. But, 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 I'm going to lose my job. 
Please don't be a controversy concerning the victory of Christ. We must press it wisely, carefully. Maybe seek someone out who's gone through this, that we cannot be ashamed of this victory to apply it and see it through. So let us make our understanding, our choices, our emotions, and our devotion be to the one who sits at the right hand of the throne of power. Last point is proclaiming his gospel. Young people, have you learned that song about the discovery of the new world? It's something like this. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. As I read about crossing the Atlantic, something kind of grabbed my attention, something I never considered before, and that is that halfway across the Atlantic, the people who crossed it back then said you could literally stand on the seaweed. There's a foundation to stand in a place nobody would ever expect one to be. Now, I don't think you can stand. I think you'll sink a little. But the point is, it was so thick that it was almost a foundation to stand in an unexpected place. Likewise, God gives us a seemingly impossible place for a foundation anywhere we are. And that foundation is the gospel. Look at verse 20 with me again. And they went forth and preached everywhere the Lord working with them. This is interesting because earlier, my first point, we dealt with the fact of the twins. Do you remember what the twins were? Unbelief and hardness of heart. But now that seems to have been left behind them. And now we see them going forward. They went from a place of unbelief and hardness of heart to the next thing. And that is the foundation of missions and pursuing it and doing it. The unbelief has turned to belief. The hardness has turned to a heart of flesh. So they went forth. And what does that mean? They went somewhere else. That doesn't mean necessarily that we have to go physically somewhere else, but if God should call you, then you should be prepared. They went somewhere else, like to Antioch, to Derby, to Paphos, Asia Minor, Babylon, or Spain. They went somewhere else preaching Christ. And notice what the word says here. The text doesn't merely just say somewhere else. In fact, the same word here in Mark chapter 16, verse 20, is used in Mark chapter 1, verse 28. I'm going to read that. But the word means, literally, everywhere, all at once, at the same time. Or another way the word could be translated is absolutely everywhere. It's a different word. It caught my attention when I read it. There's just one letter that makes it different. And that one letter means absolutely everywhere. All at once at the same time they went. So they weren't in the same place. They were somewhere else. How can you be everywhere all at once at the same time and proclaim Christ? Obviously this was the ministry of the church. It was this pastor, that pastor, that pastor. These elders, those people... Everybody was doing it as one body, all at once, trusting God. Now what reason would they have to trust God? That's in the last part here. Why can we trust God? Isn't, isn't Christ in heaven kind of left us here to be? Well, if you look at the last verse in Matthew chapter 28, and I'll connect this to this, it says there, Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, let me read verse 19 as well. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, 
teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. And so, sometimes we look at that word, he's with me. What he means is, sentimentally, go, be warm, and fill. That's not what he meant. A sentimental with you. That's not what it means at all. In fact, the next part of the verse says the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. The importance of this word here. The Lord working with them. There's that website called Monergism. Are you familiar with that? That word meaning one working. It has to do with all the parts of our salvation. Whatever God commands, He gives us a gift. He commands us to be just. He gives us that in Christ. Righteous, that's a gift too. Faith, that's a gift. Sanctification, that's a gift. Suffering is a gift. Whatever God commands and gives as a gift is not something that we work with Him on. A little contract, you know. But in this case, the preaching of the gospel, the means that he has given to advance the kingdom, he is working with us. That's what it says. We are not working alone. He is working with us. And so we can absolutely trust the means. We can absolutely come to God and say, we trust you. We're not left alone. Christ is working with us. Please allow this brief story from the time of the Reformation. Have you ever heard of the man named Pico Mirandolo? It's kind of a mentioned a little bit, gets a paragraph here. But uh, Pico Mirandolo died just a few years shy of the beginning of the Reformation, a couple years after the discovery of the New World, and that was in uh, 1496, I think he died. But before he died, he instructed his nephew in the Gospel, basically two things. He said this, Never forget that the Son of God died for you. And number two, you too, however long you live, will die. Reminded you, count our days and remember the gospel and claim to the one who loves us and loved us first. He lived his life in light of that fact. He loved God and he turned to him. He wanted to go and preach those two words, the gospel throughout the world. He wanted to do it barefooted. I don't know why it's strange. That sticks in my head. I should send out a questionnaire to the ministers in the RCUS. Have you tried preaching barefoot? <laughs> this is what he wanted to do. He wanted to go. Why? He wanted to proclaim the gospel, but he would never realize that dream. He was 34 years old, and he passed away. And many people thought that this was God punishing him for delaying. We don't know that. But it does raise an important question. Although we don't know if God was punishing him to delay, delaying certainly is a sign of disobedience. And so we shall not delay. We cannot delay. The Lord is working, but the question is, are you? And how can you work? Pray for the ministry of the gospel in the church. Pray for Dr. Reverend Lee Johnson's full recovery so he can fill the pulpit. Pray for other ministers. Get involved if you're not involved in Sunday school or an area of Bible study or maybe your Bible study, the one you want to go to is too far away. Start one in your own home. Start with one person. Start with two. Look for opportunities. But there are none. Pray for them. Ask God for them. 
that Freemason Roman Catholic person that you know? Ask God to open up an opportunity to share, however so small or however long you have with that person, an opportunity to graciously lay the claims of Christ upon that person. Look for those opportunities to proclaim Christ everywhere. And then, never forget these words. The Lord is working with you. And that final word says this is true. Amen. Let us go to our gracious God and pray. And at the same time, I'm going to go ahead and pray for the gifts and offering. And do you guys collect it or is there a place? Okay. So if the men would come forward then. Let's pray. Almighty, gracious, heavenly Father, when we consider your words, we must consider uh, two things if we've been faithful and how we can be more faithful in the ministry you've given to us, either ourselves, with our family, our children, our neighbors, but also in the church and supporting the proclamation and the ministry of the word. Forgive us, God, if we have been unfaithful. But Lord, help us now to see this foundation that you are in fact working with us as we go. And the gospel is proclaimed and preached. So gracious God, give our faith these fruits and this assurance and help us by our godly walk to win others to Christ. However difficult their worldview may be, help us God by your spirit and word to gently and carefully and graciously begin to chisel that away and give them an answer so that they would become Christians and join in the kingdom of God in proclaiming Christ everywhere as well. Our gracious God, we know that the gifts and offerings that we are now presenting, they really are nothing compared to the gifts that we have in Christ. And nevertheless, we are giving, Lord, as a thankful response. And we ask that you would bless all of these gifts in measures and ways and degrees far beyond our understanding of their ability to reach the lost. Bless them, Lord, and receive these gifts for Christ's sake. We ask in his name. Amen.